Good morning, church family. We're so glad you're here on this fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Our lead teaching pastor, David Beatty, is in Charlotte to help officiate his uncle's memorial service, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. You'll notice that our scripture reading for today is not one we traditionally associate with the Christmas season. There are no angels, there's no wise men, there are no shepherds. In fact, these verses were most likely written over 500 years before the birth of Jesus. But the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews saw the Christmas story in this particular psalm because of the way that it foreshadows Jesus. We'll be looking at Psalm 102. Now, if uh, you're unfamiliar with the book of Psalms, you can think of it as a collection of 150 individual poems. And because these poems were written to be sung in the context of worship, we call them psalms. These psalms served as the hymnal for the people of God. And in the psalms, we find a wide range of experiences and emotions. One pastor referred to the psalms as the hallmark card section of the Bible because of the way that no matter the circumstance in this book, we can find words that express our deepest and strongest emotions. The whole spectrum of human feelings can be found here. We see thanksgiving, joy, contrition, and even despondency, which is the emotion that gives rise to Psalm 102. So if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 102 as we read the first 11 verses. And you'll note that there is a heading to this particular psalm that was original, and here's how it begins. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Pretty peppy stuff, huh? Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, as the, uh, as the title of the psalm makes clear, this is a lament. These words are the cry of one whose suffering, like Job, is unexplained. And, and while the tendency of mainstream Christian media is to gravitate towards songs that are positive and encouraging, we should note that God gives us permission to lament. In fact, not only does He give us permission, He gives us examples of lament. Laments account for over a third of all the Psalms. And this reminds us that positive thinking 
is not the same thing as Christian thinking. And I think it's a good thing. I'm persuaded that uh, it's healthy. It, it's biblical for us to not gloss over these passages that reminds us that there is a place for the afflicted. There's a place for those who are hurting. There's a place for those who are experiencing sorrow in the house of God. I say that because I realize that sometimes the church can unintentionally communicate a different message. I'm sure I've said things up here before that would lead one to conclude that, well, everybody in this room should just be happy all the time because we have Jesus, and if we have Jesus, then after all, everything should be perfect, right? Well, that's not what the Christian faith teaches. The essence of the Christian faith is not some transactional agreement between us and Jesus where if we decide to follow Him, then He guarantees that we're going to have a, a, a healthy and successful life, that we're going to have a great career, that we're going to have a comfortable retirement, that we're going to have a devoted spouse that's always going to be with us, uh, that we're going to have academically gifted kids who are always going to make the honor roll and they're going to grow up to enjoy successful careers of their own. Now, now, there's nothing wrong with those things, per se, but we know, just from reading the Bible and from our own experience, that the people of God are not immune from hardship and suffering. And we see that as we look at Psalm 102. Let's go back and look at the particular trials that this individual encounters. The writer suffers from the sense that his life is meaningless. He compares his life to smoke in verse 3, and in verse 11, he compares his life to grass. These are two things that disappear quickly. There are also physical aches and pains. He says his bones burn like a furnace. He suffers from melancholy to the point of losing his appetite. In verse 4, he says, I forget to eat my bread. His physical health is deteriorated. In verse 5, he laments, my bones cling to my flesh. In verse 6, he speaks of loneliness. I'm like a desert owl in the wilderness. You know, I see the chipmunks and the robins and the squirrels. You can see them out scurrying around, but owls, they tend to keep to themselves. The, the psalmist here, he's saying that he feels isolated. He, he's contending with this terrible sense of feeling all alone in the world. He also suffers from sleeplessness. In verse 7, he writes, I lie awake, I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. And if that's not enough, in verse 8, we see he's the subject of taunts and the ridicule of others. Now, here's the thing. The, the beauty of the Psalms is that by design, the writers don't delve into the specifics of their situation. And this is done intentionally in order to allow others in the faith community the opportunity to appropriate their words and to bring them before God. And in this way, the Psalms are spirit-given paths for us to take our hurts and to bring them before the face of God. And I suspect that the psalmist's words this morning have given voice to some of the emotions that some of us in this room have experienced before. Or maybe you're experiencing right now. Maybe some of you can relate to a feeling of loneliness or of heartache or a sense of wasting. I, I realize this is supposed to be the hap, hap, happiest season of all, right? I mean, Andy Williams said it. It's true, by golly, right? 
But here's the thing. I know that it is possible in the midst of the the Christmas parties and the festive decorations and all the sweet treats to still experience a tinge of sorrow. In fact, I know that sometimes the Christmas season can even accentuate those feelings of sorrow. Because what happens in the Christmas season is that we can be reminded that our lives are a far cry from those that we see portrayed in the Hallmark movies or in the commercials or in those Christmas cards we get from our friends. The Christmas season can remind us of the pain of a, of a fractured relationship with a close friend or a family member. The Christmas season can come and it can heighten the hurt that comes from the passing of a loved one. The Christmas season can stir up feelings of discontentment as we see others experiencing things that we long to experience ourselves. And when we find ourselves in the valley of affliction, Psalm 102 encourages us to wrestle with God. The psalmist doesn't buy to this myth that he just needs to kind of bottle up his feelings and and hit override and power through. Nor does the psalmist say, hey, I just need some space here. As if to say, hey, God, I I just can't do this right now. Uh, I I need some distance in our relationship. Let me do me, God. Let let me just kind of, you know, uh, get some space here to get my head straight, to figure out some things, and then I'm going to get back with you and your church. You know, some people do that in a trial. I, I've seen that happen more times than I would care to admit. Some adversity comes and they back away from God and His church. What happens is their judgment becomes so clouded by the smoke that's arisen from their own particular problem that Instead of looking upward to God, they look inward. And when they distance themselves from God, what happens is they disconnect themselves from the very means by which God wants to pour out comfort and guidance and help in their time of trial. And we see the psalmist doesn't make that mistake. Instead of opting for space, in the midst of the difficult season, we see the psalmist does the exact opposite. He comes after God, and he comes after him hard. Let's look again at these first two verses. He writes this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. We can tell these are not the words of a person who is going through the motions. This is not a half-hearted request. This is an impassioned prayer. He basically says the same thing five different times. This is a bold cry. And and we need to remember that these words are coming from one who has spent considerable time in the cellar of affliction. And despite the fact that he's been there in that cellar, And that his situation hasn't changed because of the covenant promises of God. The psalmist is emboldened to passionately engage with God. And as he does this, as he wrestles with God, watch what happens. In the interest of time, we'll only look at verses 18 to 28. 
But we need to begin with verse 12 because this is the turning point of the whole psalm. He writes this, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Something significant happens here. In the midst of dwelling on the frailty of his own life, the psalmist takes his eyes off himself and he reflects on the one that he's speaking with. And he's just overwhelmed by the contrast. He is like smoke that vanishes, but God is nothing like that at all. He says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. He says, you're, you're, you're the king eternal. And this reality leads the psalmist to two conclusions that bring comfort. The first is expressed in verses 18 to 22. We see here that the psalmist can be confident in the present because of God's future activity. He, he knows that he can be confident in the present because of what God is going to do in the future. Some of you might be familiar with uh, Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Well, if you are, you know that on the, be the eve of the Battle of Agincourt, King Henry overhears his men lamenting the fact that they are vastly outnumbered by this French army. His troops are intimidated by the size of the opposing force, and King Henry delivers this rousing speech. Perhaps some of you recall it. But essentially what he says in the speech is this. He says, okay, if you, if you don't want to fight tomorrow, you can go ahead and leave. Because those of us who stay, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers, we're just going to have a greater share in the honor. Because here's what's going to happen tomorrow. We are going to win. And when we do, everyone's going to be talking about it. They're going to tell their kids about it. And on the anniversary of this day, they're going to raise their glasses and they're going to toast to us. Well, something similar is happening in the psalm. Only God is the intervening hero whose actions are going to be celebrated at a future day. Watch what happens right here. We're in verse 18. The psalmist writes, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from the heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when people gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. So similar to Henry V on the eve of St. Crispin's Day, the psalmist gazes into the future and he anticipates a time when people are going to praise the name of the Lord because of his acts of deliverance. He's confident that God is going to look down from heaven to earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and to set free those doomed to die. And centuries later, one conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, walked into a synagogue in the city of Nazareth on the Sabbath, and a scroll was handed to him from the book of Isaiah, and of all the places Jesus could have read, he turns to Isaiah 61, where these words are written. Here's what he read. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then you know what he did? He rolled up the scroll, he handed it back, and he sat down, and he said, Today, these words are fulfilled in your presence. You see, as a result of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see the partial fulfillment of this prophecy that the, that the psalmist is envisioning. We can sing about how God has looked down at a past point in time to set free those doomed to die. And this reality is so, uh, so beautifully captured in the third verse of one of my favorite Christmas hymns, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Charles Wesley writes this about Jesus coming from heaven to earth. He says, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. You see, Jesus came from heaven to earth to set free those doomed to die. And all of us are doomed to die apart from Christ. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned, and that might not seem like a very big deal. You might say, oh, I'm not perfect. Well, the Bible says that when we sin, that the wages of sin is death. What we earn is death. But to those who receive Jesus, to those who believe in His name, God gives life. He gives freedom from the penalty of sin. This is why the Apostle Paul could write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus' arrival in our world is the reason we can sing so confidently, my chains are gone, I've been set free. Because Jesus broke through time and space 2,000 years ago and entered into a stable in Bethlehem, we are the future generation who can praise the Lord. And yet, like the psalmist, in the midst of our trials, we need to remain confident in God's future activity. For we still await the second coming of Jesus. A time is coming when Jesus, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, will descend once more from heaven to earth. And when that day comes, the groans of His people will be no more. Because what the Bible tells us is that the dwelling place of God will be with man, and God will dwell with us, and we will dwell with Him, and we will be His people. The book of Revelation tells us when that day comes, He will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. If you're in the midst of a trial right now, groan. It's okay. But groan like the psalmist. Groan with confidence in what God's going to do at a future point in time. Groan with the assurance that a day is going to come when God's going to take your groans and they're going to turn into praise. Let's look now at verses 23 to 28. We'll see the psalmist briefly renews his lament. He lays out his request once more, and before he even gets an answer, his heart is strengthened by the realization that God is always and forever the same. He writes these words, He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. 
You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Whereas in the previous section we see the psalmist takes comfort in God's future activity, here we see the psalmist takes comfort in God's immutability. Now I realize immutable is not a word we use every day. I can't recall the last time I used that one in a conversation. But, but it's really it's the perfect word to describe what the psalmist is meditating on here. See, the, the word immutable means not capable of or susceptible to change. So guess what? We're, we're mutable. Our goals change in life. Our purposes change. Our thoughts change. Our opinions evolve. But God's not like that. God doesn't change. The psalmist acknowledges that in contrast to his short days, that God's years endure throughout all generations. In verse 27, he says, but you are the same and your years have no end. God's the same. You know, sometimes we might say things like, well, uh, you know, that's as old as dirt or this problem's as old as the hills. I think that's because sometimes we can think of the the organic material that, that makes up the earth as being very old. And the psalmist says, well, God even predates all that because God laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hands. And we know from what the writer of, of the epistle of Hebrews has given us that these words specifically apply to the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the creator of everything. He's the one who laid the foundation. So then you might wonder, well then, who made Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is that Jesus did not need to be made because Jesus was always there. Jesus is self-existent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, the reason that Jesus can give life is because Jesus is life. In and of Himself, He is life. And one day this present earth will pass away, but Jesus will not cease to be who He is. And this is a great comfort and consolation. I suspect some of you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, maybe. Some of you have heard of this. Well, one of the central characters in the story is the beloved and wise wizard Gandalf. He leads the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, I, I guess I should preface this, um, this illustration with a spoiler alert. But, but I do feel like, come on, if a movie is over 10 years old, I can give away the plot twist, right? I mean, you, you've had over a decade, so, so here we go. Don't be mad at me. Tor- towards the end of the first movie, something unexpected happens. So, so Gandalf and his traveling companions, they've been working their way through this underground mine where they've encountered these ferocious orcs. And just when you think they're going to survive and they're all going to make it safely to the other side, Gandalf 
goes mano y mano with this menacing monster who's shrouded in fire, and they fight on this bridge, and it seems like Gandalf's going to have the upper hand, and he hurls this creature uh, down off the bridge into this deep chasm, and just when you want to breathe a sigh of relief, the creature reaches up and he grabs a hold of Gandalf's leg, and he pulls him down into the deep abyss with him, and we say bye-bye to the beloved wise wizard Gandalf. And you know, if you saw the movie, uh, how gut-wrenching that scene was. It was like a punch in the gut. It was disheartening. It was deflating. You, we can't believe we're, we're, we're bidding farewell to Gandalf. Well, if you went on and watched the second movie, you know what happens. Guess who comes back? Gandalf. But we don't know that when we're watching the first movie. But Gandalf somehow survives the fall, and he comes back even stronger. Now, now let's suppose you don't know that. You've never seen these movies. You're, you're at Walmart. You walk by the, the DVD bin, and you see the Lord of the Rings trilogy for sale, and, and you buy it, and you take it back home, but somehow you manage to mix things up. And you mistakenly, you, you watch the second movie before the first movie. Now, now, what would happen when you eventually got around to watching the first movie, and you see the scene where Gandalf plunges into the deep abyss? Is that going to be deflating? Is that going to be disheartening? No. In fact, if your kids are watching it with you, you can say, no, 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 it's okay. Hey, don't worry about it. Everything's going to work out. Gandalf's going to come back. In fact, look, right here, I got the DVD box. Look, look whose face is on, like, movie two and movie three. It's Gandalf. It's all going to work out in the end. The psalmist does something similar here. He says Jesus was present at the beginning. He laid the foundation of the earth. And one day, the earth will wear out like a garment, and it's going to pass away. And guess who's going to be there at the end? Jesus And if Jesus was there at the beginning and Jesus is there at the end, no matter what happens in the present, we don't need to despair because he has it all under control. And God isn't just managing the big picture. The Bible tells us that he has numbered even the hairs on our head. That's pretty detailed. We know that God's eternal purposes do not change. He doesn't change his mind He doesn't ever act out of character. He doesn't ever get surprised. He doesn't ever need to call an audible. He doesn't ever find himself in a tough situation and need to back up and punt. He doesn't ever become complacent. He doesn't ever grow tired. He doesn't ever become weary. He doesn't ever give up on loving. God never becomes less merciful or less compassionate or less graceful. God is eternally changeless. He always stays the same. And we can be confident that He is always going to act towards us in a manner that's consistent with His character. And if the Bible tells us that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him, we can be confident of that. We know that God's purpose, what God desires, is the eternal fellowship of His people And he's working right now in the midst of your circumstance to bring that about. You see, this psalm doesn't teach us that 
if we're in the midst of a trial, that God's going to change our circumstance. Rather, what the psalm teaches us is that God doesn't change. And when sorrows like sea billows roll, we can cling to that. You see, we're, we're mortal. The Bible tells us that. But we have a God who's immortal. We're finite. But we have a God who's infinite. We're perishable. But we have a God who's imperishable. And when we grab hold of Jesus, what we are not in ourselves, Jesus is for us. When we take hold of Jesus, Jesus allows us to be partakers of his very life. This is why the Apostle Paul could write in the book of Colossians, he said, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All of our hopes are secure in him. And when our trials and troubles have had their utmost effect on us, here's what we know is going to happen. They're just going to serve to bring us into the presence of God in the exceedingly great reward that he has prepared for those who love him. And I know some of you are hearing this and you're thinking to yourselves, it's a nice story, but it's a crutch. This is just, you know, a nice myth for people who need hope and help coping with reality. And if that's what you're thinking, I'd say, okay, uh, you can make that argument, but it's a tough argument to make. And the reason I say it's a tough argument to make is because you still have to explain the fact that it's been 2,000 years and people are still celebrating Christmas. And you have to account for that somehow. Why are people still celebrating the birth of Jesus? And if you want to say, well, it's because his first followers, they, they constructed this myth. They concocted it themselves. I, I would say, well, what was in it for them? I mean, certainly not riches or fame, right? Because we know the first followers of Jesus they were persecuted and martyred for this. We, we, we know the Christmas story didn't advance because of conquest. It didn't, it didn't advance at the tip of a spear. You see, the best and most logical explanation for the Christmas story that we have today is that it happened just as those first witnesses recorded it. And for those of us who believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. There is the promise of experiencing his very life and enjoying eternity with him and being established in his presence. And I want to just give us some space now to reflect on what it is that God has revealed for us in his word. And I'm going to invite you just to bow your head and close your eyes as we become before the one who laid the foundation of the earth. God, we thank you for giving us your word and counseling us through it and by your spirit. And I pray right now for the one who needs reminded in this season that you're not done working. I pray for the one who has been pleading like the psalmist and is still afflicted. 
God, I would ask that your inspired word would have its desired effect in their heart. And that you would come and you would communicate to them all that you are and all that you want to be for them. God, I pray for the person who came here this morning, who's searching, who's questioning. And I pray that in the same way that you sent your star to guide those wise men to Jesus, that right now that your inspired word, this text, would guide them to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that before and you want to do that today, you can pray a prayer like this. You can say, God, I thank you for coming to earth. I thank you, Jesus, for living the life I could never live and dying the death I deserve to die. I believe that you died in my place and that you rose again. And I acknowledge you to be Lord of my life. And I want to follow you all of my days. Amen.